2: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Much excitement this morning on the front pages as it would now appear that there could be a coronavirus vaccine available within weeks. But the Prime Minister yesterday didn't seem all that enthusiastic about it, did he? When he finally gets some good news, uh, news he can use and promote as if it is something that is going to change the world, he doesn't use it. Strange, isn't it? How very odd, how very bizarre. Uh, Apparently Boris Johnson doesn't trust the public not to get all uh, mushy about the idea that there's a vaccine and everybody's going to go running out and hugging one another all the time. However, I actually share his lack of enthusiasm because it's not going to be available to most of the population for a very, very long time. If you look at the list of people to whom it's going to be made available, you've got to get down to number 11 on the chart before it's basically the rest of the population and anybody under 50 and anybody who hasn't got anything wrong with them. This morning, instead, we're not going to talk about the coronavirus vaccine. We're going to talk about a letter that's been sent to Boris Johnson by a collection of around 500 academics on behalf of a parent's charity who say the government is exaggerating the risk of COVID and using data to do so, which is exactly what I've been saying for weeks and weeks and weeks. Dr David Livermore, Professor of Medical Microbiology, will explain. 0344-499-1000. Coming up, We'll also be finding out what the effects of lockdown are on you and your family. And for that, we want your help, of course, as well. Tell us what you're seeing. Tell us what you're hearing. You're the eyes and ears of the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, and we need to know what you know. Later on, Esther Cracker will be here to discuss the fallout from the US presidential election, now that the Attorney General has approved an investigation into election fraud demanded by President Trump. She might even have something to say about Meghan Markle as well. 0344 499 We'll talk cycle lanes with Howard Cox, junk food with Adams, the Adam Smith Institute, and travel guru Simon Calder will join us as well with some more great news on quarantine being cut for travellers coming back to the UK, hopefully in time for Christmas. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, many of you who listen to this show on a regular basis will know uh, that, of course, I have said for many, many weeks and probably months, actually, that the problem with the way that lockdowns are being organised, the way that measures are being brought into play uh, is that the data on which those measures are based is kind of being misused and is being misdirected and is being entirely, um, shall we say, manipulated in order to bring the government to the point at which they want to arrive. And I think that is entirely wrong. And I'm delighted to say that I'm going to welcome to the show now Professor David Livermore, uh, who's Professor of Medical Microbiology at the University of East Anglia, because he uh, is among nearly 500 academics who have written a letter to the Prime Minister saying just that. Uh, Professor David, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I mean, I've been saying for a very long time, if you actually look at the data... Um, as it comes in, in terms of uh, numbers of people in hospital, in terms of hospital admissions, in terms of people dying of COVID-19. You know, you can take a variety of things from it. Tell us about your letter. Tell us about your concern.
3: Well, the principle of the letter is the principle of medicine, which is to do no harm. Mm. And SAGE and the government have been so obsessed with deaths due to COVID, and numbers of patients in hospital with COVID, that they've really taken their eye off all the other harms that their policies are doing. I mean, this week, the World College of Psychiatrists saying that its members are seeing more and more emergency cases, mental health admissions to to units in the NHS are at a record. Uh, The London Ambulance Service... Has seen a 68% increase in attendance at suicides. These are real tragic harms that are being done not by COVID, but by the government's response to COVID. Your news item just a moment ago mentioning children regressing, forgetting how to use a knife and fork, back in nappies, concentration diminished as they go back to lessons. You know, this is their future being disrupted. Um, One could go on and on. One in eight shops not reopened from the first uh, lockdown. Uh, I walked round Anglesey when Anglesey was open uh, a month ago, and I found every other lunch stop I'd planned was at a pub, which turned out to be closed. The list goes on and on. Huge damage has been done, not by COVID,
2: but by the response to COVID. And one of the things that I've always found puzzling, Professor, when I look into these figures and I look at the models that they project into the future and Mm. all of the things that they do in order to make sure that we are convinced somehow that what they're doing is right, I can't quite understand why they're not taking all of those things that you've just mentioned into account as if it doesn't matter.
3: I think it's the nature of who sits on stage, And I know some of these people and that they're good people. But if you put... A group of people together, all of whom think the same way, all of whom have the same priorities. You come out to a foregone conclusion that those priorities are at the top of the list and that the harms that are being done are not recognised. And that's the hole that they've dug for the government. And then the government's gone down that hole and it's continued excavating on its own account.
2: Mm. Because unfortunately for those people who have suffered, and I'm amazed in a way that more businesses haven't gone under and that more people haven't become even more ill than than the numbers that we've seen already. But it's almost as though they don't matter. You know, I've never really seen a government take such um, a grip of one particular thing (laughs) while ignoring almost everything else. And I, I mean, I'm assuming that in other countries where they're also doing similar things, they must be operating the same way.
3: You would think so. I mean, several European countries, Spain, uh, France, uh, um, Ireland have all gone back into lockdowns of some sort or other. And the same issues are arising with mental health, with other health conditions, with massive damage to economies, which uh, um, it's easy to, to say, oh, well, it's money against lives. But it isn't because the damage to the economy ultimately damages the tax base, which in turn damages the ability to provide health care and everything else for the years to come.
2: Yes, exactly right. And looking at, for example... Um, the guidance on the vaccine, uh, which was announced yesterday, with, with not very much fanfare, to be honest, by Boris Johnson. He didn't seem terribly enthusiastic about it. But if you look at the list of people who would be eligible for it, number one, older adults resident in a care home, care home workers. Number two, all those 80 years and over. Three, all those 75 years and over. Four, all those 70 years and over. I mean, it sort of gives you an indication of who is most at risk of this disease, coronavirus. Well,
3: absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the facts. Absolutely. And the vaccination strategy makes sense on those grounds. It's all the people who, if they get this, are likely to suffer severe disease and possibly death. Mm. So it makes sense to do the vaccination that way. But for somebody who's young, sits there and thinks, well, I'm nowhere on the priority for vaccination. And yet I'm under virtual house arrest in my student digs and I don't even know if I can go home for Christmas. Yeah. I can well understand why such a person is extremely knocked and rightfully knocked at what they're hearing. But hopefully, let's be positive, this vaccine is going to provide a ladder up which the government can scramble out of that hole.
2: Yes. And I mean, interestingly as well, in this second lockdown that we appear to be going through, Um, You know, on on what I would call anecdotal evidence in London, it doesn't seem as though much has changed. I mean, apart from the shutting down of pubs and restaurants uh, and a couple of other smaller shops... Not much has changed in terms of the footfall. Not much has changed in terms of people uh, on public transport, driving in cars and buses uh, and also in vans and lorries and all of that. You know, so this lockdown is really not like the last lockdown. And I wonder, therefore, um, whether the government was expecting that because they don't seem to be doing much about it. They're not sort of urging people not to go out as much as they were.
3: I think there's a far larger group of people now, who do not believe that lockdown is going to do very much good at all and therefore don't follow it perhaps as assiduously as they did the first lockdown, when lots of people felt that they were doing something for the greater public good and you need to meet somebody walking on the footpath and they'd get six feet out of your way. Now that doesn't happen. Mm. Um, More people are cynical and resigned, if anything, about it. That's no good if you own a pub or a cafe, you're still shut down. You've got no turnover, you've got no income. It's no good if you've got a shop. Do you know whether to order Christmas stocking or or do you fear that this lockdown is going to be like the last one and three, four weeks is going to get extended to three or four months? Mm. So a lot of damage is being done there, even if fewer people are hiding away as were last time.
2: I've got a, a text here. Uh, a tweet rather saying uh, from from Crisps who says lockdown is having a significant impact on my friends and family most worryingly is the mental health impact on children, my child is six and has had an increase in panic attacks is scared to hug grandparents and worries every time they have a slight cough I mean that's what's going on out there in the big wide world
3: Well, I think the government must carry a lot of blame for the amount of propaganda that it has put out, which has been wildly unbalanced and has been designed to frighten people rather than to inform them about the real risks. Uh, Practically, every bit of advertising one sees on the tube now is propaganda of some sort or other. Various street adverts, media adverts... uh, going out all the time, which frightens people. And a child, a small child, seeing everybody wearing masks doesn't learn to recognise facial, facial patterns and facial responses in the same way. Huge damage is being done here, and it gets back to that original point of the letter, which is do no harm. And in their obsession with minimising or trying to minimise deaths from COVID itself, they are doing harm
2: left, right and centre. And the other problem I have, uh, Professor, is that there's no apparent measure of whether these lockdowns have actually worked because we heard from Mark Drakeford yesterday in Wales who said he doesn't think that they could ever return to uh, what their lives were like before. I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Um, but he hasn't given a kind of a, a gold standard of, you know, this is why we were right to do it. This is what we are now looking at. You know, it turns out Merthyr Tidville during the lockdown, became the highest infected part of the country, uh, not just in Wales, but in the entire UK? I think it's extremely hard. I mean, there have been published attempts to look
3: at the the effect of lockdowns, but they've failed to control for seasonality. And what happened in the spring was that deaths peaked before you would have expected the lockdown to have an effect, which suggested the virus was turning down anyway. And the virus came down much the same way in France with a strict lockdown, ourselves with a somewhat lighter lockdown, and Sweden with no lockdown at all. This is behaving like a seasonal virus. We then, in the autumn, had a kick with it going up, I think, with schools and universities going back in particular. That feeds through the system, but then it levels off. I mean, there's a terrible tendency... Among scientists and public officials, to attribute any positive to our actions and any negative to something that we haven't done. So we we claim credit in the terms of lockdown, credit for anything positive as being some good a lockdown, but it might just be the seasons. It might just be some chance thing. And if you doubt that, look at Worldometers. And look at Argentina, which has had a strict lockdown right through their winter, uh, our summer, and look at Uruguay, just across the river, which has had a lighter lockdown, and actually Uruguay seems to have got off much, much more lightly than Buenos Aires and Argentina. Hmm. It has to be chance.
2: I mean, I was watching a news programme last night and there was a sort of a, a global map put together by, I'm not quite sure who, so I, I'm assuming it was uh, a scientifically based one rather than one just done by some of these journalists. But it, it basically showed where most of the infections were. And most of the infections seemed to be uh, concentrated largely in Western Europe and the United States of America. And most of the rest of the world, particularly what you might call the developing world, looked pretty clear of it. And I just wonder how that could be and if there's anything that we could draw from that. Well, I
3: think it's a reflection of where most of the testing is. If you look at the UK, we do as, or for many months, we were doing as many tests as any other two European countries combined. So if you're counting infections, then um, that's why there's the, the, the great preponderance in North America and Europe. If you're looking at deaths, I would suggest that's because we have an older population. Uh, If you look at Africa, then it's mostly in the Middle East, it's mostly young populations Mm. who are much less vulnerable. So I I believe that those are the main factors. It's it's extended testing and age
2: profile of population. And and finally, Professor, um, you say that talk of a second wave has been misleading. What do you mean by that? I
3: mean that I view this as a seasonal virus. It is something that goes down in the spring and comes back up in the winter, which is exactly what other coronaviruses do. This isn't like flu, where you get a single strain goes through, you get uh, immunity mounting to it. Sometimes it goes between two humps, so hence two waves, occasionally three. This, this, This seems to me, much more a virus that's behaving like a classic seasonal coronavirus of which we've got four, which we've learned to live with for for many many years right there's an argument that what we're seeing is similar to what happened in 1889 and the early 1890s when it's just possible that one of those four first started to circulate and you've got a series of sluttering peaks over about four or five
2: years right which would explain i presume why um august uh and july were pretty uh, low in terms of increased rates of infection because of the warm weather and the fact that people were out more and all of that and have you had an answer finally to the letter uh, professor
3: not as yet certainly not come <laughs> to me or been shared with me <laughs> i think you had ross maidman or uh julia hartley brewer had her on earlier right. she was the lead signatory she, 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 uh, I don't think she's had any response yet because she would have shared it with me, I'm sure.
2: No doubt. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Professor David Livermore there from the University of East Anglia, Professor of Medical Microbiology, uh, who agrees with me uh, that basically much of the data which is being used by the government is being misused by the government. And it's also then being used to project about things that haven't happened yet. And we say this all the time, but of course, the figures... For what we are told is going to be a terrible, terrible situation, are not quite there. They're not. It's as simple as that. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Now, one of the puzzling things about the lockdown uh, of London and of many other cities is that the congestion levels of people driving around are completely and utterly out of all proportion to the numbers of people who are supposedly coming to work here. And to try and find out why that is, let's talk to Howard Cox from the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Howard, very good morning to you. Hello,
1: Mike. How
2: are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Now, you've been a tireless campaigner, it can only be said, uh, against the uh, ridiculous kind of traffic uh, regulations in London and elsewhere in the country, uh, which have got much, much worse since the, um, shall we say, coronation of uh, King Sadiq Khan into uh, into the uh, to, to run the London Assembly. I mean, what he has done to this uh, city is really quite disgraceful. Um, tell us about why you're here today. Uh, there's an important letter that's been written, uh, and maybe a bit of light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is good news. I've been working very hard for the last four or five weeks uh, to fight on a number of issues. Obviously, Fair Fuel UK has actually for ten years has fought to actually. Uh, keep the cost of motoring down because 70% of what you put in your tank goes to the government. And the motorist always picks up the tab for everything in this country, fifth largest income to the treasury. But the big thing that is in my intro, which is I've actually had to actually work hard on in the last three or four months, is this whole thing about roads being blocked under the guise of congestion, uh, sorry, COVID uh, emergency Mm. powers. And what's happened is that there's a lot of people rising up and fed up the back teeth, particularly in London, but we mustn't forget, it's right across the country, most of the major cities are having this too, where the cycle lanes are eating into the uh, existing roads and we're getting the situation where cars, trucks, vans, and emergency vehicles are being blocked and, and restricted to one lane, while the cycle lanes, which are hardly ever used, uh, have free reign to do what they want. And 94 percent of uh, of most of the traffic uh, in this country or journeys of the country are on bicycle. The yeah. other 96% by the internal combustion engine.
2: Right. I mean, it would seem to me, just from my own anecdotal information, as I drive around, you know, yes, there are cyclists who use the cycling lanes, um, you know, at rush hour, perhaps, because they're going to work and then they're going home. But would would it make more sense if they kind of put hours of availability on them, perhaps, and said, you know, it's a cycle lane, I don't know, from 7 till 10 in the morning, but from 10 until 4 in the afternoon, you can drive on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a serious point. That's one reason why I've been lobbying in government I've managed to get 15 <clears throat> 14 Tory MPs and plus Craig McKinley the chair of the all party parliamentary group called Fairfield for UK Motors and hauliers yeah. to actually write to Grant chats and basically say could you rip up these cycle lanes don't roll out any more this is not common sense it's politically damaging as well as economically damaging. Yeah. And 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 I'm really pleased to say in fact I've got 14 MPs signed this up and it went to Grant Chaps last Friday uh, we've announced it today to give it a bit of time and I understand Uh, Grant Schatz will be responding later this week. Um, But I think we've got another 30 or 40 MPs, including some previous very senior cabinet ministers.
2: And we've already seen, have we not, some of these cycling lanes being kind of put back to proper usage because they didn't work. For example, <laughs> the one uh, that goes underneath Euston uh, Road, I believe. Um, but equally, you'll also know, I'm sure, Howard, but if you don't know, I'll tell you. Um, in Kensington High Street, where they've brought in cycle lanes, they have put those ridiculous poles up, which mean that not only can um, cars and emergency vehicles not use those lanes, but also taxi drivers, can't pull into the kerb if they need to pick up somebody, which, of course, is not the biggest problem in the world um, if you're able-bodied. Uh, but if you're in a wheelchair, you can't get in a cab. You can't stop there for you. You hit
1: the nail really on the head. And the taxi drivers are probably the biggest supporter i have got in the last four or five weeks. Yeah, good. What, yes, I can't announce some of the words they've explained to us. No, I'm sure. Like what they're saying about Sadiq Khan. But the simple thing is, where's the common sense? One reason why your station is so popular is because of common sense, mm, and believe yeah. you me, it's nothing to do with left or right wing. There's a lot of uh, uh, cyclists are also saying so, the, the same thing. Uh, there's, there, I think, this petition that's happened recently in Hackney, where mm. a cyclist oh. has actually uh, put up a petition to stop the cycle lanes, and he's a dedicated cyclist. He said it's completely counterproductive because uh, uh, the whole aspect of actually blocking traffic and making them stand still means there's more pollution, more congestion, and The worst thing is emergency vehicles can't get through to save lives.
2: Right, exactly. And also you've got people like Will Norman, who is the sort of cycling czar inside of the London Assembly. And along with some other, um, shall we say, combatants that you take on on a daily basis, the kind of the cycling Taliban, as uh, Richard Littlejohn would call them, the people who are really, really, uh, you know, excessively into cycling and want to ban all cars. I mean, these are people who want to see a completely and utterly carless city, not just in London, but in Manchester, in Leeds, uh, you know, like some kind of, you know, uh, Scandinavian sort of, you know, Valhalla, where nobody drives a car. And London and and Britain is not like that. Well, that's right. And most of this evidence is based on flawed
1: scientific data. There's a funny Uh, thing. Yeah, yeah that does sound a continuing theme doesn't it mike um the thing is um since in the last 10 years for example the, the road haulage industry uh, who, who do back my campaign Fairfield uk yeah. they yeah. have actually been responsible for reducing emissions in london by 60 percent yeah but that's not a headline that's not nice euro six vehicles are very clean now no one's dying of this this is a complete myth not one death certificate has any any uh, 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 link to someone dying due no, to no this whole you know this whole
2: forty thousand people dying from, yeah. from pollution a year is a bogus figure from a bogus organisation called the United Nations. If you start believing anything they say, you might as well check yourself into the uh, you know the local sanitarium.
1: Well, they have got a very clever statistician there because what it is is that uh, poor uh, air emissions or poor quality air is responsible for reducing uh, our lives by three days. Mm. Now. When I'm 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 sixty six very shortly, and you know, three days and sixty-six years doesn't really make a difference to me. <laughs> uh, but they've actually multiplied this particular figure up and got to forty thousand deaths of and that's have. the deadline. And yeah. the guardian I mean, it's just beggar's belief, isn't it? Yeah, but the Guardian and the Independent are just loving this completely. And and we're fighting like mad. and I'm pleased that we've got Tory MPs and they're growing by the day to actually
2: say, stop this stupid policy, let's get some common sense back into road transport strategy. And is there any sort of petition people can sign, Howard? Because I want you to make sure that people know this is not just about London. It's about Britain, isn't it? That's a very good point. The best thing to do is to go to
1: fairfueluk.com. And sign up there; it's free, completely, and you'll get all of the notifications from me about what to do, how to contact your MP, and all sorts of things we're doing. And, and thank you to Talk Radio, particularly Mike Graham, for all the help he's been giving.
2: Howard, no problem at all. Absolutely, my pleasure. We shall uh, fight them together, uh, and hopefully, we shall be victorious. Howard Cox, there from Fair Fuel UK campaign, will be tweeting out many of the things that he wants you to see, uh, and of course, uh, where to go to contact your local MP. mid-morning with mike graham talk radio the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Tomorrow of course Prime Minister's Questions will be back and we'll be bringing you that right here live uh, with Charlotte Ivers. Neil Oliver will be here as well tomorrow to talk about what's going on uh, in his neck of the woods in his part of Scotland. A lot of people tweeting me, texting me uh, telling me that they're not entirely sure uh, that the vaccine is going to be as big of a deal as it's being made out to be on the front page of the papers this morning. Certainly Boris Johnson didn't apparently uh, feel particularly uh, enthusiastic about pushing it because he said he didn't want Want people to get too carried away with optimistic thoughts, really. Well, I don't think there's too many people feeling particularly optimistic at the moment, but I'll tell you what if you are in the mood for optimism, then what you need to do is to listen to the people who engage in optimism, and they are, of course, special advisors people who work uh, for the government, people who work for government ministers, relatively new jobs that have been created. Sort of Alistair Campbell style, really, when he started off with Tony Blair. That was kind of when it all began and suddenly everybody had to have their own spad. Peter Cardwell uh, is a former government special advisor. He's written a book called The Secret Life of Special Advisors. You've all seen the thick of it. Uh, I assume you have anyway. Um, how true to life, Peter, is that? Very good morning
4: to you. Good morning, Mike. Great to be on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Very nice uh, to see you. <laughs> Yes, good to see you too. It must be said that we often have a drink at the end of the week, uh, as special well, have as special advisors, and uh, you would often ask each other, did you have a thick of it week or did you have a West Wing week? <laughs> so were you like the, the people in the West Wing or in, in the thick of it, uh, two very familiar dramas on TV, and of course the thick of it was the one that was more usually the option, right. uh, certainly was asked.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, I always assume and I, I don't know too many uh, special advisors and, and, and that many m- members of the, the government. But, I mean, you always see people. I mean, saw Matt Hancock this morning um, getting hijacked for Good Morning Britain. I don't know if you saw that, uh, you know, because, of course, you know, no government ministers appeared on GMB uh, for something like 190 days or whatever it is. Um, and he just looked absolutely like a rabbit caught in the headlights. And you can imagine his special advisor getting a kicking after that, presumably because he didn't tell him that it was a guy with a camera waiting outside the building that he was coming out of.
4: You've got to be aware of all these things. You've got to be kind of a body man or a woman. You've got to be your sort of a friend, advisor, a lackey, a bag carrier, all sorts of things. I even give fashion advice to one of my boss's wives, for example. So, you know, you, you That's fulfill tricky. a lot of different roles. Yes, it is, definitely, definitely. She's a very fashionable woman, but <laughs> uh, we were doing an interview with the Daily Mail, and she asked whether it was all right to wear jeans, and I said, no, probably the Mail's readership would expect something a little bit dressier. Right. So, uh, there- kind of decision you have to make as well as you know spending a lot of government money and advising your minister what to do in terms of running the government so Mm. um it's, it's interesting they have press people they have policy people but for all the thousands of civil servants there you generally only have sort of two or three special advisors
2: and I mean, without wishing to put you on the spot, because that would be the last thing I'd want you to do. I mean, Dominic Cummings is the kind of special adviser, special advisor, isn't he? I mean, we heard about him um, when he came back into government and he brought all these young things in, some young, brilliant young minds. And then he used to sort of verbally uh, beat them up every week and tell them that, you know, sometimes next week some of you won't be here. Uh, you can imagine he was putting pressure on. Them. Some of these people are kind of workaholics, aren't they? And they expect you to be a workaholic as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've lost count of the times that uh, radio stations have rung me at half five in the morning or, or quarter to one at night. Uh, but that's just the job. And you sign up for that. I was certainly in those meetings with Dominic Cummings at 10 Downing Street. We trotted in every Friday evening, usually around six or six thirty uh, to be told the, the way things are, the gospel according to Dominic. Mm. And although he was the man who sacked me, I think actually there's a lot to be said for Dominic Cummings's approach. I think he's someone who uh, you know, we obviously won the Leave uh, campaign, not a campaign I supported, but I can certainly appreciate that he did a great job in winning that campaign and all, also to get Brexit done. So, I mean, in the very first meeting, actually, I was in with Dominic Cummings, he said three things. He said, we're going to, over the next few months, we're going to get Brexit done, we're going to have an election, and we're going to win a big majority. And i just come out of the last sort of 68 months of the Theresa May administration, having worked in that as well. And we were all very tired and very dejected and sort of thought, I'm sure none of these things can really happen are really realistic and of course they all happened um, and the government was off to a really good start this time last year obviously coronavirus has got in the way of that um, but there's no denying that he has he, I think he's a strategic genius even though he's the guy who sacked me
2: Yeah, well, I mean, everyone thought he was a strategic genius until uh, he made that rather uh, uh, ill-fated car journey, which I personally totally understood, um, but it kind of made him look less invincible, I suppose, and it made him look like just a normal person. And I think up until that moment, people saw him as this kind of, you know, superhuman character uh, who was so brilliant that you couldn't even begin to think about what was going through his mind, because he was always 25 steps ahead of everybody else. But in that instance, he kind of looked a little bit daft.
4: That's a really good point, Mike. I think everybody will have made up their mind in regard to what they, they think of that. You're uh, you're more charitable than I know a lot of people will be. I would probably be more charitable than a lot of people as well. But it's interesting, even Dominic Cummings got uh, sacked twice by David Cameron, for example. Right. You're a bit of a political mayfly as a special advisor, so you don't last long usually, but Boris Johnson has shown a lot of loyalty to Dominic Cummings and kept him on, and I think Dominic will be there for some time to come.
2: And you were with James Brokenshire uh, for a while, and obviously there was some Northern Ireland action that you got yourself involved in. Some of the Book talks about um, a time when when Theresa May I think was over there, um, and it's a particularly dangerous kind of choppy water for any politician, never mind a prime minister, isn't it?
4: Yes, absolutely. I mean, Northern Ireland is uh, somewhere where I worked for about a year and a half. When James Broganshire was Secretary of State there, I worked with his successor for a few weeks as well. to kind of bed her in. But no, it's a very, very difficult uh, time in Northern Ireland. Obviously, they're having their own response to coronavirus at the moment. But the good thing is that Sinn Féin and the DUP are working together. Devolution is working in Northern Ireland, and that's a really good thing. And that's uh, very satisfactory to those of us who sat through all those talks, trying trying to put Humpty Dumpty together again.
2: And is there a kind of hierarchy of SPAD because we always assume that there is from the outside, you know, that depending on who your minister is, you know, like if your minister uh, is one of the big offices of state like if you're Rishi Sunak's um, you know, special advisor, you're probably more important uh, than Grant Shapps's special advisor.
4: Yes, ab- absolutely you know, and Dominic is at the top of that tree and a really good guy, you mentioned Rishi Sunak there, one of the special advisors I worked with in government is a guy called Liam Booth Smith and he is uh, Chief of Staff to uh, Rishi Sunak. Liam's an amazing guy, he's, you know, he's son of a single mother from a council estate in Stoke, who's gone gone to, you know, risen to one of the most uh, most important jobs in the country, advising Rishi Sunak as his chief of staff. So, no, it's it, it's interesting, obviously, governments are elected by a democratic process, but then once you elect the administration, they, of course, choose all these people, choose these special advisors like me. Uh, I was obviously a little bit further down the pecking order than others than you mentioned Alistair Campbell there earlier. He was obviously at the top of the tree with Tony Blair. So, it's uh, it, there's certainly a hierarchy and, and you've got to know your place a little bit but at the same time it's important as a special advisor to have a good connection with Downing Street to have good connections with your other special advisors uh, because sometimes you need to ring people very quickly and to get things done to maybe yeah, ask for a lot of money to be spent or to un- unplug a problem um, and it's it's important to have as good relations with others as you can
2: and what was the most embarrassing thing that happened to you when you were a special advisor
4: Oh, too many to mention. I mean, the one that went on for eight days was my boss, James Broganshire. This was in a at a different department, at the housing uh, department. Um, we did a, an interview with one of the home sections of, of the Sunday newspaper. It was actually the Sunday Times. Um, and uh, everything was fine. Did a really good interview. Everything was perfect. And uh, then someone noticed that uh, in the background, uh, James and his wife, Kathy, had multiple ovens and uh, oven <laughs> gates went on for, for eight days, people saying, has he got Two ovens, four ovens, are they double ovens? I remember which, that. Yeah, it just—it it was my life for, for eight days, and we, we just had this. We had this actually quite important announcement about uh, domestic abuse. It just got totally overshadowed by people <laughs> ringing me up. But one at one stage, a journalist rang me up and said, "Is Mister. Brugenshard denying he has four ovens as if he has something to cover <laughs> up?" Which was <laughs> which is quite weird. That's great. Um, so yeah, it was. It was that's, definitely,
2: that's definitely thick of it territory. Listen, it sounds great. The secret life of special advisers. Uh, where where can people get it, Peter?
4: You can get it on Amazon, you can get it in Waterstones, you can get it in all sorts of uh, bookshops. And uh, Hive as well is a good one that supports independent bookshops. Sales are going well. We've actually just ordered a reprint. Um, and uh, uh, Christmas is just around the corner, yeah. Mike. So uh, well, I hope well, people uh, unless, have a look unless, at it.
2: Unless it gets cancelled by Boris Johnson's special advisor. Um, what are you doing now, by the way? Are you out of it?
4: Yes, I'm out of it completely. I mean, I still talk to people. I spoke to, spoke to a number of friends in politics over the weekend. I'm doing a, a bit of consulting for a few business firms, kind of explaining politics to them. And actually, I did uh, homelessness policy when I was in the, uh, when, in the Ministry of Housing, which is a really interesting thing to do. We got a, a reduction in rough sleeping numbers uh, two years in a row. And uh, I'm uh, advising um, a commercial company on that as well. So it's uh, as a non-executive director. So you, you do get some really good opportunities. It was the best job in the world. I loved it. It's never forever. Most people get about two years. I got three and a half no complaints um, lots of laughs on the on the way as you can read in the book
2: great stuff peter thank you very much indeed peter cardwell former special advisor to james brokenshire amongst others uh, the book is called the secret life of special advisors it does sound like a written version of the thick of it uh, which if it's that funny uh, is obviously worth getting mid-morning with mike graham talk radio Now, let us say a very good afternoon to Mr. Simon Calder, travel guru, travel editor at The Independent. Probably not in a position to travel very many places at the moment, Simon. Very good afternoon. Uh, Good afternoon. No, like everybody else, Mike, I'm having to make
3: do
5: with what I've got. So here we are at beautiful Lower Marsh Market in um, uh, lovely London SE1. I just thought I'd come down here and show you a little bit of um, uh, London life like everybody else um, nobody is allowed to travel for fun at the moment you're allowed out of the country you're allowed out of your home area only if there's a good reason for work or for uh or for education um doing stuff for fun simply isn't allowed unless you are for example uh, deciding um that you're you, you have to have some exercise with one other person yes but that's all you can do and so uh yeah it's well it's been really interesting listening to the program And this idea that um, uh, vulnerable people are being told, don't go out. Um, Because, of course, if you're in quarantine, even if you're a completely unvulnerable person, at the moment you come back, as you say, from almost anywhere. The answer is you are going to be self-isolating for two weeks. And that means you are definitely not leaving the house. The only grounds for doing so are legal proceedings, uh, medical treatment, and if you've got to go shopping for essentials. So really really tough and uh, all the way through the government's been saying there is no viable alternative to that but it seems as though finally this so-called global travel task force which is chaired by the health secretary matt hancock and the transport secretary grant Schatz, is deciding that there might be an alternative after all just a question of what that might be
2: Yes, because, I mean, certainly Heathrow Airport has uh, in the past, in, uh, in fact, on this very show, uh, sort of signalled its uh, willingness to, to start some kind of a testing centre and a testing service for people either leaving or arriving who can be tested when they come back from wherever it is they've been. Uh, and maybe if they're going somewhere, which requires a test for them to enter it, right? Uh,
5: well, yes, and, and that, that I've actually had that test and it's a very straightforward process. It's the so-called LAMP test which is not as efficient as the um kind of gold standard uh, nhs pcr test but uh, they say it's still pretty good and the idea is testing people where countries are saying we need to make sure that mike's not infectious before we let him in here um they also said look we can do it on arrival as well really easily the government said we're not interested we're going to make people quarantine for well somewhere between five and eight days and then we're going to uh, let them have a test at their expense. And then finally, if that's negative, they'll be able to go. So roughly halving the length of the quarantine, as as you were saying, you know, if you've got friends, family coming over and you want them to have something like a half decent Christmas, that might be one way of doing it. No certainty yet. Um, and of course, until December the 3rd, which is when we can
2: kind of start travelling again for fun, uh, it's not going to be particularly relevant no, indeed. I mean, it looks as though where you are now is not particularly heavily populated, but it's an area, I think, where there are one or two restaurants knocking around. Is it looking as if there's not much open at all? Uh, not much open. Uh, your supermarket um, uh, well-known
5: stationers is open, oddly, um, but I'm sure they're selling essential stuff. And Apart from that, no, um, here we are. Uh, the hospitality industry, very much like the uh, uh, the... the travel industry as a whole is um certainly shut down again and um we've been hearing overnight that uh, new key airport in cornwall uh they basically just said well we're going to shut down till december honestly it's not worth staying Mm. open because Course, there's hardly anybody travelling right at miserable times.
2: Yeah, it really is bad. Although, and I know you're not a, a man uh, to talk to necessarily about financial figures. However, uh, I understand that a lot of the airline stock prices went up yesterday on the announcement that there might be oh. a vaccine available, and, and it was particularly good for EasyJet and IAG, I'm told.
5: Uh, yes, EasyJet, I've just checked, are still up one third on the, where they were um, yesterday before the news of the vaccine came in. Um, IAG went up I believe 38% uh, and then holiday companies as well 2E and Jet2 up by about 30% Mm. Um, and that's the first bit of good news that they've had and um, really the idea that actually people will start travelling and if I may Mike, the most significant thing which has happened this morning um, just actually, uh, while while you've been on air, I have been um, trying to pay attention but um, it's been uh, (laughs) cracking. I'm just going to show you this line of taxis, so About a quarter of a mile up there, you've got um, uh, Waterloo Station, all these taxis just waiting for passengers who aren't going to be on the trains because everyone's been told. I mean,
2: I I speak to to, to cab drivers from time to time, Simon, and it's soul-destroying what the stories they tell me. It really is awful. It's
5: just terrible. But, I mean, that's exactly the the repercussion. If you tell everybody, do not even think about getting on a train, um, guess what? People won't get on a train, and then there won't be any work for the cab drivers, and there won't be any work for the... uh, People in the cafes and so on. Um, Anyway, but the good news is um, this morning, uh, Michael O'Leary, who you will know as the um, sometimes controversial chief executive of Ryanair, um, has been saying that actually he's pretty convinced that um, we'll be travelling in numbers again, quite significant numbers, probably 70, 80, 90 percent um of, of 2019 right which was the last sort of sensible year we'll be back by next year and um, actually it'll be great for the uh consumers because there'll be really good prices as everybody tries to uh get us to travel on their uh on their holidays so well let's hope that's so a little bit of good news I and mean... he he does know a thing about it and he has made a few billion out of um, flying people around europe so uh, we have to pay attention to him um and uh yeah, it's, so things are sort of brightening up, but certainly for the next three weeks, it's going to be absolutely dismal for cab drivers, for airline pilots, for cabin crew. Yeah, for it can't be it can't be much
2: fun, Simon, for 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 Britons. Uh, who run holiday homes and holiday companies and hotels and things. I mean, the British tourist industry has all but disappeared. And I know that quite a few people during half term were able to go to places in in the UK. Um, But now that they can't travel even inside the UK, I mean, it must be very um, disappointing if you've got, I don't know, a hotel in Cornwall or Devon or something like that. Just awful. Yes. And particularly since the
5: government has said, OK, we may not be able to control what, say, an Irish airline is doing. We can certainly control what a British hotelier is doing. And if Mike can't make it for his weekend, you've got to give him all his money back. Mm. So, yeah, it's a it's an awful time. And not just for people holidaying domestically, because actually there were parts of the British travel industry which did all right this summer yeah. because so many people stayed at home. But, of course, if you look at London, Um, The entire city is dependent on incoming holidaymakers. There aren't any. And that is absolutely devastating. So, uh, yeah, the economic damage is going to be awful. Mm. The so-called scarring to this, to what used to be um, a fantastic industry. And my heart goes out to all those people who've lost their jobs, who are having a really tough time just desperate to know when things are going to get a bit better
2: yeah right and i mean if it does end on december the 2nd as the government says they hope it does this particular lockdown and if christmas was to be um something that people could go abroad to spend time with their families doing i mean will there be places we can we can go because i was as i said at the start i'm not sure there's any countries now uh, which don't require quarantine when you go there well it's a horrible combination of um where you can go to where you won't need to
5: quarantine when you come back, but more to the point, well, what they'll demand from you. And um, the Canaries, for example, which were opened up, what, uh, two weeks ago, then the government said, oh, surprise, uh, you've your lovely November holiday there. Well, um, we're going to tell everybody to stay at home and not travel. Um, but on top of that, um, the Canaries themselves have said, right, for anybody staying in official accommodation, you can have to have a test. Uh, for coronavirus you've got to bring the certificate if you want to stay in official accommodation which covers pretty much anywhere so that's getting tricky too um it could be um gibraltar is the place to be or it might be that actually uh we see with the news of the vaccine with some light at the end of the tunnel with the idea at, um uh that that actually this is uh things are going to get better that maybe the brakes come off and indeed i've to somebody mm. quite uh, well connected in the travel industry who was saying actually they think that the um december the second end of english lockdown may be brought forward i think that's very unlikely but yeah. um it's something to hope about and i'm sorry about this noise oh dear oh dear what is it but um yeah i haven't even got to the end of the uh taxi queue yet look at that
2: i can't identify that noise can you explain what it is uh i think it's something to do with waste disposal
5: it appears to be coming (laughs) from a skip right it's all quite um, all quite tricky and they're just all those ballots from pennsylvania
2: getting shredded
5: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we're looking at what was until the start of this year the busiest transport terminal in europe that's extraordinary 200 million people coming through uh, Waterloo Station in central London, um, we're down to about, I guess, maybe 5% of that, probably less. And um, we're probably up to 100 cabs now, still not at the front of the queue, still no sign of any um, any customers. Mm. It's a desperate, desperate time.
2: It really is. And I mean, last but not least, any hope for those air corridors that were mentioned a couple of months ah. back?
5: Well, I mean, they were mentioned basically, and, and good, good work, Mike. Uh, good memory uh, in the context of London, New York. And um, you might have—I think you've covered it on on talk, haven't you? We it's have. Seen, um, I think an election in um, in the US. We uh, have. I, 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 I got a bit of no, news on that, but uh, no. Um, the reason you or I cannot even think about getting on a plane to New York at the moment is because there's a presidential proclamation signed by Donald J. Trump from March. Now, Joe Biden. Um, Again, you might have noticed he's got one or two things on his plate, Mm. but eventually he'll get around saying, so we don't want people from the UK, from parts of Europe to come here because of their high rate of infection. Um, Well, let's just uh, moderate that and maybe start looking at when we can get British people coming back uh, to to uh, the US. Won't happen immediately, but I think it will happen probably within weeks rather Mm. than months. That At least we get a bit more news. But apart from that, it's all uncertainty, and I finally made it to the front of the taxi queue.
2: Well done. Um, I bet you there, are no, you there are no passengers in it, though.
5: Well, sadly, no. Oh, hang on, hang on. Uh, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> uh, oh, no, there's a couple of uh, cabbies being very friendly. and Give me a wave, but that's all.
2: Yeah. Well, listen, a pleasure to speak to you as ever, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder, a a travel editor at the Independent, travel guru, man that knows all there is to know. This is a man, by the way, who we have previously seen uh, perambulating around Venice. This is a man that we saw walking around the hills uh, of Tuscany. This is a man uh, who we've spotted walking around in all sorts of different situations. But now, sadly, uh, he's down to walking about Waterloo Station, where nobody is. Uh, We'll see you soon, Simon. Thank you very much indeed. Maybe there's hope yet for me to get over and see my mother before she turns 97, uh, which will be next March. For heaven's sake, this is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Talk Radio.
1: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham.
2: On Talk Radio.